0: Chapter eleven of the Girl From Pharises by Edgar Rice Burrows. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter eleven A Matter of Memory From La Salle Street to Goliath, Idaho, is ordinarily a matter of some two days' travel, but required the best part of a year for Ogden Secor to perform the journey. On the train he became acquainted with an alert and plausible stranger who owned a gold mine in the mountains north of Ketchum all that was needed for development was a few hundred dollars worth of machinery and flumes that would make its owners fabulously wealthy by the time the train reached shoshone ogden secor was inoculated with the insidious virus of gold fever that mad malady which raises white hop through the veins of its victims distorting every mental image and precluding the sane functioning of the powers of reason in possession of all of his faculties at their best secor could never have been trapped so easily but what with weakened mental and physical powers the result primarily of the work of the cracksmen and later of the effects of alcohol. He fell an easy prey to the highly imaginative enthusiasm of his new acquaintance. And so it befell that he left the train at Shoshone, and in company with the owner of the gold mine, boarded another for Ketchum, the northern terminus of the branch line. Ketchum is, or at that time was, a squalid wreck of a place. But like every other settlement of its stamp, it boasted several saloons. To one of these the mine owner led his victim. Here they discussed ways, means, and barbed wire whiskey until Secor passed over the few hundred dollars remaining to him that his partner might go forth and purchase the necessary machinery, and the outfit that was to transport it, and them, north into the mountains of the Marrow. Secor, waiting, drank with the proprietor, with the loungers around the place, and with others who drifted in, scenting whiskey at another's expense. Night came, and still the mine owner had not returned. Nor did he ever. Next morning Secor awoke, partially sobered, to a realization of the truth. He had been fleeced. He was friendless and all but penniless in a strange town. But worst of all, his nerve was gone the year that followed was a hideous nightmare of regret and shame the soul surcease from which was untenable only through the stupefying medium of drink oftentimes he was hungry for there was little chance to earn money in ketchup again he did odd jobs about one or the other of the several saloons when a flash of his waning self-pride or the growing desire for whiskey goaded him to the earning of money later he was given work as a clerk in the general store his knowledge of accounting proving of value to the proprietor This man, realizing that the continuous use of whiskey would have no tendency to increase the value of his new clerk, employed him with the understanding that for six months he was to have but a small percentage of his wages weekly, just enough after the store closed Saturday night to permit a mild orgy from which one might recover over Sunday and be fit to work for Monday. At the termination of six months, Secor demanded the balance of his accrued wage and received it. Much to his employer's surprise, he failed to spend it immediately for drink. Instead, he did what he had been planning upon, took the first train south for Shoshone and Goliath. In his mind was a determination to seek his farm and be thereafter independent of any employer. There was, too, the decision to stop drinking, but little did the man realize the hold the sickness had taken upon him. Secor found Goliath a thriving town of three or four thousand inhabitants. His first inquiry, notwithstanding his good resolutions, was for a saloon, nor did he have any difficulty in locating several. The tiresome journey from Ketchum had given him far too much leisure with his own gloomy thoughts and vain regrets for company. A little drink would do no harm, and then he would stop would never touch it again, but just now his nerves required the stimulant. Then, too, was it not a well-known fact that in too sudden a cessation of the habit lay grave danger? Ah, criminal fallacy! To you how many countless thousand graves owe their poor, miserable inmates? And so it happened that at dusk it was a far-from-sober man who entered the palace lunchroom in time for the evening meal. As he slouched down upon his stool, his befogged vision struggling with the blurred and scrawly purple of the mimeographed bill of fare, The girl waiting across the counter from him for his order could scarce conceal the disgust she felt at this slovenly and unkempt appearance. She could not see his face while his head was bent low above the greasy card, but she knew that it must be equally as repulsive as his soiled and disheveled apparel. Who would have guessed that this object of the content of a cheap lunch-counter waitress in a far-western railroad town could have been the spotless Ogden Secor of two brief years ago? Presently he looked up into the girl's face. At sight of his features she gave a little involuntary gasp, stepping back at the same time as though to avoid a blow. "'Smatter?' asked Mr. Secor. The girl eyed him intently for a moment, and then, with a sigh of relief, forced a smile to her white lips. He had not recognized her. "'Nothing,' she said. "'I'm taken that way occasionally. Hart asked Mr. Secor. June Lathrop looked at Mr. Ogden Secor in silence for a moment. "'I wonder,' she said half to herself, "'I wonder if it is he?' He gave his order and ate in silence, occasionally casting a furtive glance in the girl's direction. When she brought his dessert, he asked where he might find a comfortable hotel. I only just arrived, he explained, and am not familiar with the town. The meal had sobered him a bit, so that he can talk a trifle more coherently. As he ate his pie, June stood in front of him, talking. She told him where there was a room in a private family, nearby, that he could probably get. He was filled with wonder at the change that had taken place in him. When his face was in response, the depth of sorrow that it revealed touched her heart. In vain she looked for the one-time radiant smile that endeared Ogden Secor to many beside herself. Could it be possible that this was the fastidious society and businessman she had known but little more than two years since? It was incredible. Are you going to remain here? She asked. I guess so, he replied. I have a ranch around here somewhere. I've never seen it, but I'm going out tomorrow to have a look at it. And if it's all right, I'll settle here and go to ranching. Much doing in that line? Alfalfa and fruit ranches pay fairly well, she replied. It depends, of course, on several things. Soil, water rights, and—she hesitated—the man who's ranching. Farming, nowadays, you know, is something of an exact science. To be a successful man, you must understand that haphazard methods won't work. can a man learn? he asked. Yes, she replied. But even then he won't succeed if... She hated to say it, but... Oh, how she hated to see him as he was. But even then he won't succeed if he drinks. Ogden Secor flushed. He was still far from having lost all self-respect. Without another word, he paid his check and walked out of the lunchroom. It served him right, he thought, for having entered into familiar conversation with a waitress. The following morning he engaged a buckboard and a driver for the trip to his ranch. A half-hour's hunt through the records of the county clerk's office sufficed to locate his tract. As he was driving through town, he told his guide to stop in front of a saloon. "'We may get dry before the day's over,' he explained with a grin to the more than willing native. "'It would never do to stop too suddenly.' As he stepped up to the bar and ordered a flask, the words of the waitress came suddenly to his mind. "'But even then he won't succeed if he drinks.' They seemed to take the edge off his appetite for whiskey, but he pocketed the bottle and soon was jogging along through the stifling dust toward the only thing on earth that he might by any twist of the imagination call home. As they drove along, Secor tried to picture the rolling meadowlands, the shady orchards, the broad, green fields of wheel-high, scent-sweeted alfalfa of his ranch. Never before had he given this least value of his possessions more than a passing thought. But now that it seemed to offer him a peaceful haven of rest and quiet, and utter seclusion from the world that he had known and come to hate. He viewed it through a mind's eye that glorified and idealized. He could scarce restrain his impatience with the slow, plodding team that wallowed now through sand to their fetlocks and again labored upward towards the brow of a rough, lava-strewn bluff. At last they came within sight of a broad, willow-fringed river. Low islands, dense thicketed, love the strong, swift current with their sharp points. They might have been great, flat ships forging their silent way toward the distant mountains of the Northland, and whence the mighty river tumbled, roaring downward for its thousand-mile journey to the waters of the lesser stream that steals its identity, onward to the sea. All was grayish-green or greenish-brown, and all was sere and desolate and cold. Here and there little patches of half-melted snow lay in the shadows of the sagebrush, that dotted the rolling flat beside the river. Beyond, Secor could see a similar landscape upon the other shore. "'It is farther than I thought,' he said to the guide. "'That's mostly the way in Idaho,' replied the man. Secor was wondering how they were to cross that mighty torrent, for it was evident that the ranch must be beyond the river. There was no signs of habitation, no rolling meadowlands, no shady orchards, no green alfalfa fields with its can upon the river's heather side. He realized, of course, that the season precluded the full summation of his dream, but there would at least be plenty to suggest the beauties of the spring and summer when they should come upon his home. The guide drew rein upon a little knoll beside the river. "'Want to get out?' he asked. "'What for?' questioned Secor we're here.' Secord looked at him searchingly. Already the truth was leering on him with a contemptuous grin. "'Is this it?' he asked, nodding his head in a half-swing that took in the surrounding desert. "'Yep,' said the guide. "'Tain't much good. You ain't got no water.' Secord laughed, a merry, mirthless laugh. "'Oh,' he said, "'I think it's a pretty good place.' "'What for?' asked the guide, in surprise. "'To take a drink,' said Secord, pulling the flask from his overcoat pocket. The guide grinned. "'And you don't need no water for that,' he said. "'No,' replied Secord watered spoil it. For weeks, Secor frequented the QP saloon at Goliath, emerging occasionally to eat and sleep. Every time he ate, he was reminded of the waitress at the palace lunchroom. But he didn't go there. He wondered, when his mind was not entirely befogged by drink, why the girl should cling so tenaciously to his memory, and what cause there could be for the uncomfortable feeling that accompanied recollection of her warning. For warning it evidently had been. One night Secor was sitting in a stud poker game. The gentleman next to him developed a crouching manner of inspecting his buried card, placing his eye on a level with the table and barely raising the corner of his own card. This permitted him to inspect Secor's buried card at the same time. A dozen hands were dealt before Secor discovered why he always won small pots and lost the larger ones. Then he saw that his worthy opponent not only looked at Secor's buried card, but immediately thereafter passed obvious signals across the table to a crony upon the other side. At the following deal, Secor did not look at his buried card at all. He merely remained in on the strength of what he had in sight. From the corner of his eye, he saw that the sly one was becoming nervous. Secor had an ace and two deuces up, but there was still one card to be dealt. At the betting, Secor raised for the first time. Then, proposedly, he turned his head away from his cards and the man at his left to take a drink that stood at his right hand. He guessed what would happen. When the drink was halfway to his lips, he turned suddenly to the left to discover the sly one in the act of raising his, Secor's, buried card, to learn its identity. Like a flash, Secor wheeled, dashing his glass with his contents full in the face of the cheater. With the same move he gained to his feet. The other whipped a revolver from beneath his coat. The balance of the players scattered and the loungers in the saloon ran for the doorway or dived over the bar for the security its panels seemed to offer. If secor had been a foot further away from his antagonist, he would doubtless have been killed. As it was, his very proximity saved him. There is no easier weapon to parry at close range than a firearm. The slightest deviation of aim renders it harmless. As the gun flashed beneath the electric light, secor's left arm went up to parry it as if it had been a clenched right fist aimed at his jaw. The bullet passed harmlessly past him, and with a report of the exploding cartridge, his own right landed heavily upon the point of the cheater's chin. The man went backwards over his chair, his head striking heavily upon the massive pottery spittoon. Then he lay perfectly still. Ogden Secor stood with wide eyes, gazing at the prostrate form of his antagonist, dazed. The bartender poked his head above the sheltering breastwork of the bar. Seeing that the shooting appeared to be over, he emerged. His first act was to remove the gun from the nerveless fingers of the supine man. Then he turned toward Secor. "'Got a gun?' he asked. Secor shook his head negatively. A moment later the players and the loungers returned to bend over the quiet form upon the floor. With them came the sheriff and a doctor. The former, after questioning the bartender, took Secor into custody, as several men carried the injured gambler into the back room. All night Ogden Secor sat sleepless in the bare cell. He was very sober now, and all the depths to which he had sunk were revealed to him in all their appalling horridness. It was unthinkable, and yet it was true. He, Ogden Secor... A participant in a drunken saloon brawl. Tomorrow, or as soon as they should release him, he would seek out the man he had struck and apologize to him, although he knew that the fellow deserved all he had got. He was sorry now that the bullet intended for him had not found him. It would have been better so, and infinitely easier than to go on living the worthless besotted life that he was surely headed for. By eight o'clock in the morning the sheriff entered the corridor outside his cell. "'How's Thompson this morning?' asked Secor. Thompson was the name of the cheater. "'I guess he's comfortable,' said the officer with a grin. He ain't sent back for nothing. Has he left town? asked Secor. Yep, said the sheriff. He's dead. You killed him. Secor collapsed upon the hard bench at the side of his cell. He felt as though some mighty hand had struck him heavily over the heart. There was a look in his eyes that the sheriff had never seen in the eyes of another of the many killers he had arrested during his long years of service. It was neither fear nor horror. The sheriff could not have interpreted it, for he knew not what height's pride of name, of family, of station, birth, and breeding may lift a man above the sordid crimes nor how awful is to plunge from such a pinnacle to the bottomless pit of shame which ogden secor's naked soul was plumbing that instant you needn't take it hard said the sheriff kindly you hit him in self-defense there's half a dozen witnesses to the fact and to the fact that you wasn't armed he was hit in the spittoon with the back of his head that killed him they're in a jury in idaho that'd find you guilty you ought to have a medal for all the ornery cusses that ever struck goliath that tin horn was the most orneriest after the sheriff left him ogden secor sat with a bowed head his chin resting in his palms He was surprised that the thought that he had killed a fellow man should not weigh more heavily upon him. It was the debauching derogation that had led him up to the killing that caused him the most suffering. The words of the waitress at the palace lunchroom came back to him once more. But even then, he won't succeed if he drinks. Well, he wasn't succeeding in anything except getting rid of his little store of money. What in the world was there for him to succeed at anyway, he thought? If the ranch had been any good, he would have pitched in there and worked hard. There he could have led a decent life, and earned a respectable living. He had no ambition for anything greater, but the sight of the arid sagebrush wilderness, which had dispelled his dreams of fertile orchard, field, and meadowland, had so discouraged him that, since, he had been able to see no brighter ray than that which is reflected from the liquid fire which crossed the bar of the q p in sparkling glasses. As he sat buried in vain regrets and sorrowful memories, weighed down by his thoughts of his utter friendlessness and loneliness, he became aware of the presence of someone approaching his cell along the short corridor. Not sufficiently interested even to look up, he sat with his eyes riveted upon the cold, gray cement of his prison floor. It was not until the footfalls halted before the bars of his cell that he raised his eyes. With a little start of surprise he came to his feet. Before him, smiling down into his face, stood the waitress of the palace lunchroom. He looked at her inquiringly. "'I thought,' she said, "'that you might be lonesome here—that there might be something I could do for you. If June Lothrop had required any reward for the generous impulse that had sent her to seek her side in the time of his adversity, she was amply repaid by the expression that lighted his face at her words. He almost choked as he attempted to reply. "'And I was just thinking,' he said, "'how absolutely friendless I am here. It is awful good of you. I don't know how to thank you. But you really ought not to be here. I am not—not the sort of person a decent girl should know.'" To what awful depths of self-abasement must Ogden Secor have sunk to voice such a sentiment as this? June felt the tears coming to her eyes. "'You mustn't say that,' she said. "'The Sheriff told me all about it, and that you—it was in self-defense.'" "'It isn't that,' said Secor. "'It's that I was there at all.'" gambling in a saloon, and drunk. Drunk! I should have thought that would have killed whatever natural sympathy a woman might feel for a man who had killed another, even in self-defense. And, he continued, do you remember the warning you gave me the first day that I was in Goliath? Yes, she said, but I didn't think that you would. I have, a hundred times, he said, and wondered why I should. I wondered, too, what prompted you. Did I seem as bad as that even then? Or what was it? She did not dare tell him. He looked at her closely for a moment. Haven't I known you somewhere?" he asked. She mustered all her courage. It was less on her own account that she dreaded telling him, than on his. To be befriended by her might seem the last straw, the final depth, below which there was no sinking. "'My name is Lathrop,' she said. "'June Lathrop.' Secor shook his head. "'No,' he said. "'I don't know you. But there is something mighty familiar about your face.'" CHAPTER eleven.